The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Right, I want to talk this morning a bit about mysticism. A couple of problems when you talk about mysticism is I always try to give a sympathetic uh, a picture of whoever I'm lecturing on as I can, but in many ways I'm not fully sympathetic towards mysticism, partly because I'm not sure that I actually understand it properly. Um, partly I think that is the nature of the subject. For the very definition, mysticism involves the communication of something that is incommunicable. And it's always struck me as problematic <coughs> as a lecturer, having to lecture and communicate something that is, in its very essence, incommunicable. So I wanted to start with by reading a passage from what I think is one of the best books ever written. Um, uh, yeah. Some more here if we're running out. Has everybody got one? Or are we? How come you guys missed that? On the front right. Mysticism is something that enjoys something of a vogue at the moment. Uh, started really, I suppose, in the late 19th century um, and has continued to enjoy popularity among Christian and non-Christian circles. And I wanted to read a passage um, from one of the best books, I think, ever written in the English language. Um, you may well be able to guess uh, what book it's from, but it captures, I think, something of the popular attitude towards mysticism that sees mysticism as something that transcends doctrinal and creedal boundaries and touches something um, archetypal, I suppose, in human nature. I won't tell you the book it's from, you'll probably guess. Slowly, but with no doubt or hesitation whatever, and in something of a solemn expectancy, the two animals passed through the broken, tumultuous water and moored their boat at the flowery margin of the island. In silence they landed and pushed through the blossom and scented herbage and undergrowth that led up to the level ground till they stood on a little lawn of marvellous green set round with nature's own orchard trees, crabapple, wild cherry and slow. This is the place of my song dream, the place the music played to me, whispered the rat as if in a trance. Here in this holy place, here if anywhere, surely we shall find him. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him an oar that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror, indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an oar that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken and <coughs> trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them and still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that, though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse where death himself waiting to strike him instantly, once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden. Trembling he obeyed and raised his humble head, and then in that utter clearness of the imminent dawn, while nature, flushed with fullness of incredible colour, 
seemed to hold her breath for the event. He looked very eyes of the friend and helper, saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the growing daylight, saw the stern hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking while the bearded mouth broke into a half smile, saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest, the long supple hands still holding the panpipes, only just fallen away from the party. <clears throat> Saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward. Saw, last of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little round, podgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still as he looked he lived, and still as he lived he wondered. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Never, never. And yet, O oh Mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Sudden and magnificent, the sun's broad golden disk showed itself over the horizon facing them, and the first ray shooting across the level water meadows took the animals full in the eyes and dazzled them. When they were able to look once more, the vision had vanished, and the air was full. The book? Wonderful passage, written under the impact, I think, of Rudolf Otto, the idea of the holy. Rudolf Otto, the man who perhaps more than any other intellect in the 20th century, set the trajectory for divorcing uh, the idea of the holy, the concept of God, if you like, from a non-doctrinal context. Kenneth Graham, those of you who know anything about him, was indeed a mystic figure through his writing, sought to communicate a mystic understanding of God to his readers. Um, those people who get so upset about Harry Potter should be a lot more upset about the wind in the willows, I think. But I go on record as saying I think it's a wonderful book. And that particular passage is extremely striking and points us towards the definition of mysticism as is often popularly operated with. And that is mysticism as a direct experience of an immediate, inexpressible reality. Often today, of course, that is connected with being at one with nature. You see that coming through in Graham's writings there. Who is the presence that they stand in awe of? <coughs> Pan, god of the countryside, playing the pipes, uh, obviously half man, half goat. It is the god Pan. There is a connection in the popular mind between mysticism and ecological concerns. That is why when we come to people like Hildegard of Bingen a little bit later on, we will find, uh, I think one of the reasons why Hildegard is considered to be interesting <coughs> and important is because much of the language she uses strikes a chord with popular cultural language today. Language about the world, ecology, uh, a language that exalts the feminine, the kind of things that it is, if you like, politically correct to exalt today. She strikes a cultural chord. Once, I think, she has been divorced from her strikingly <coughs> doctrinal Christian context. I think what, uh, what happens with a lot of these characters, I'm not a postmodernist. I don't believe that authorial intent is unrecoverable. But I do think that once a book has been written, it can be taken off and used. In but I read you that passage because another of the, the hallmarks, it seems to me, of mysticism, as I read mystic writers, is of communication of the ideas <clears throat> they focus quite often on a parabolic way of teaching 
or a symbolic way of teaching where part of what they are trying to teach is not simply the propositional truths, if you like, but the actual wrestling with what the meaning is in the first place. It be part of the essence of a parable that it teaches not only by directly communicating truth to you, but how you think about yourself in relation to the story. That you are transformed, if you like, by reading the parable, by entering into the narrative world of the parable. It's what I think Kierkegaard scholars refer to often as indirect communication. And that is, it would seem to me, as an amateur reading the mystery. That is why, a little bit later on, I've got a couple of um, Hildegard of Bingham tracks. I've got the translation, I've got the Latin, and I've got a translation of the Latin for you to listen to. One of them is Hildegard, as Hildegard originally wrote it, Hildegard, and the other one um, is a kind of New Age techno-funk. I think that's the typical phrase for it. Uh, um, it's got a New Age techno-funk version of Hildegard, which I was listening to with my wife last night, and we're not really into that sort of music, but there's a strange kind of hypnotic quality to the, the electrical um, but I've got the, the, the language as well Agreed, because it seems to me that Hildegard is not only writing theology she's specifically writing music to go with that theology as well and if one therefore wants to try to come to terms with what she's doing it's not enough just to look at the words on the page one has to one of the things that uh, mystics tap into in the middle ages I think is the technique of reading aloud and reflecting upon the words as they're read aloud. And it's only one step from that to music. Don't get me wrong, I'm not really at all sympathetic with this, but I feel it's important for me to give as fair an account of the medieval mystics as I possibly can, and remain open to the fact that one may well learn something from them. So then, medieval mysticism, I want to talk about the, about the problem of definition. I've already said, how do you express an inexpressible reality? Uh, second way, we often think about mysticism. I think in the modern 20th, 21st century, we tend to see it in terms of an opposition between experience and dogma. The opposition between experience and dogma, you're all familiar with it. Those who, you know, those who know God and those who know about it. It's a distinction that Jim Packer makes at the start of his book. It is, I think, in a pre-modern setting, an entirely false dichotomy. I don't think the medieval mystics thought in terms of experience as opposed to dogma. They were always more or less dogmatic, I think. And I also am persuaded by those I've read this week who talk about the very possibility of experience being something like scotch mist that disappears as you grasp it. Uh, there's a sense in which place a great emphasis upon the unknowability of God difficult then to talk about experience that they are unknowable in many ways. How do you experience something that you can't? Certainly one could say uh, extremely difficult to communicate. So there is no, I think, in medieval thinking, op opposition between experience and dogma. As they sometimes even one might say that mysticism is opposed to experience because mysticism is the total otherness of God. And that requires distancing him from our experience of him. Secondly, there was in medieval thinking a union between what one might call the effective, the intellective aspects of knowing. Knowledge was more than just grasping of propositions, it was experiencing of those propositions. The intellective and effective aspects of our minds were one and the same. 
the object of the intellect, the object of the will was the same thing. The intellect grasped it as truth, the will moved towards it as the good. But it was one and the same thing. God seizes you both by your intellect and by your will. You both know him intellectively and you experience him in terms of your will. Third thing that I've mentioned, opacity of language. <coughs> but language hides as much as it reveals. And that is as true, I think, for, it's true for most medieval theologians, except for what those, those ones we might think, such as Abelard. There is a sense among the medieval theologians, wholly inadequate for the task, and that is the expression of divine reality. It's why you get somebody like Aquinas drawing so heavily on Dionysius the Areopagite, that the language he uses is at its most meaningful when it is simply denying things of God. Because language itself is a finite medium and therefore struggles to even point to infinite realities. So it's another aspect, I think, that you find uh, intensely in the mystics as you read them. But it is there for most orthodox medieval theologians. You certainly get it there in Aquinas. And I certainly want to, I want to talk a little bit later on about Aquinas as mystic theologian. When we tend to think of the medieval theologians as mystics and non-mystics, I think that is not a distinction. There are those who write more mystically than others, but at the end of the day, they're all somewhere on the same, on the same ladder. Opacity of language leading sources, medieval mysticism. Platonism as a philosophical school drew heavily upon symbolic language. It also drew a, a sharp distinction between the world of the real and the world of the ideal. The world of shadows. Those of you who read Plato know about his famous uh, talks about sitting in a trying to grasp reality is a little bit like <coughs> don't see reality itself. You see mere shadows of reality. This kind of epistemology lends itself to a mystical understanding of God, where God is always some way removed from uh, direct contemplation or direct grasp. So Platonism. Secondly, the meditative aspect of medieval, as found in the monasteries. Many of the mystics' writings are written down forms of visions that they had. Those of you who read Hildegard of Bingen, much of Hildegard, and certainly all of Julius, Joan of Arc, good one. Meditation, culture is important for the rise. Augustinianism, emphasis upon divine illumination as a source of knowledge that there are truths that are simply illuminated you. They're not graspable by you rationally. They are supernaturally by God to deeper knowledge of himself. Clearly, that kind of epistemology, so again, mysticism can be as one of the legacies of Indianism <coughs> in the mid Hierarchical theology. The most famous, of course, is Dennis, Dionysius the Areopagite. Hierarchical theology, the idea that knowledge of God, the Christian life, is an ascent, it's a return to God, it's an ascent from the purely material world right the way up to pure spiritual existence with God himself. You get that with Dionysius, linked there with the liturgical practices of the church. <coughs> Through the church's liturgy, you are slowly lifted up and raised towards God himself. Through bodily self-denial and asceticism, you slowly renounce the world and move towards God. 
very, very common pattern in the early church. And interesting, I think, that in the modern appropriation of mysticism, the uncomfortable bits get left out of the way. Well, yes, I am. Richard Gere, Buddhism. You know, you can still be engaged in massive consumption appeal to him as a Western. He feel good about himself, but he doesn't have to engage in the terrible aesthetic practices that may achieve enlightenment. Same thing goes on, I think, with modern. I wouldn't mind betting that more Christians today in the world probably read Julian of Norwich than read Martin Luther. I'm suspecting if you go into the average Christian bookshop and look for historic Christian literature, you're more likely to find mystical, non-mystical stuff. I might be wrong on that. That's just my hunch. But what you will not find is modern Julian of Norwich praying for the kind of bodily sufferings that she You cannot divorce Julian's visions from the fact that she was lying near to death's door for much of this time. It's a classic, I would say, consumerist approach to uh, religion. Take the bits that you like, you dump the bits you don't like. So hierarchical theology, and we've already seen a bit of that, this, this term. Bernard, so Bernard, Bernard, however you want to pronounce it, Bernard of Clairvaux. How does he characterize the Christian life, do you remember? In forms of different kind of loves. Love for yourself, love for your fellow man, love for your um, Love for God because of what he does to you, and really love of God for himself. And then also, it's a hierarchical way of looking at it. It's in quite nicely with the kind of pattern. And Bernard of Clairvaux has many mystical elements in his theology, the contemplative aspect of him, the focus upon the suffering of Christ upon the cross. It's a hallmark of medieval. Just as an aside here, I think it's another point of continuity between the Middle Ages and the Reformation. I often tend to think of continuity in the Middle Ages and the Reformation in terms of. But it also struck me this week when bringing the death of Christ, how close that was to many of the things that Martin Luther says about the of the cross. There's a point of continuity, it seems to me, between and late medieval piety, in that they both focus upon the suffering on the cross as an essential part of the Christian life and Christian experience. And Luther himself reprints certain German mystical texts, affirmation. He is influenced of the late medieval German mystics. So again, I think, it's a point of continuity with the past. So those then are the sources. Sure, Virginia. I think both. I think in the early Middle Ages, what you often get is an emphasis on Christ as victor and king. It seems to me that the Christus victor motif of understanding Christ's death emphasizes the victory. When you come to the Middle and later Middle Ages, you're getting more emphasis upon the suffering of Christ. Now, I think in part that is to make us grateful for what God has done. This is God's son, God's only son, the son whom he loved, suffering like this on behalf of us. But it's also a period of time when you get the arrival of the um, stigmata. These are the wounds that appear spontaneously in saints' hands and feet and side. And they still happen today. I mean, a very, very strange phenomenon. You still get these people who cry blood. And I mean, interesting enough, if you're crucified, of course, they put, put the nail somewhere through there. The stigmata always appear here, um, which is where often Christ's wounds are portrayed on paintings. The wounds uh, appear there. I mean, nobody quite knows what causes these. Um, but it would seem to me that one could, when you get the kind of cult of the stigmata developing, it's quite clearly uh, not simply there an emphasis upon Christ suffering objectively for us, but upon us, if you like, participating in the suffering of Christ and Christ's sufferings becoming something of a paradigm for the Christian life. And that's certainly what you get in Luther. 
Luther doesn't want to say Christ doesn't suffer for us and Christ suffers in a unique way. Certainly he does. But Luther also wants to say, well, if Christ suffered, you can expect no better. You should expect no better. Don't moan when you suffer, because if the Son of God who is perfect suffers, you should expect to suffer too. And it seems to me that that expectation of suffering for the Christian, because Christ has suffered, is something that comes through very strong in the later Middle Ages. And I was quite impressed. I have to say, when I was reading the mystics, I didn't expect to, for them to appeal to me at all. But some of the things they touched upon, I thought, well, this is really, this is theology moving towards what Protestantism is saying in unities here, between the language about suffering of Christ and the Christian, and what Luther is trying to do, and the kind of worldview he's trying to put across. I think that you are right in saying that the Reformation emphasises the atonement, though I'd want to say that the Middle Ages does that too. Um, the mystics don't perhaps emphasise the atonement in the way the reformers do, but the reformers don't simply emphasise the atonement. They don't simply operate with one model of what, you know, the, the basic model is that Christ, you know, for Calvin, is satisfying God's justice. That's the basic, if you like, penal model. But that doesn't exclude other emphases in their understanding of the atonement. They too want to emphasize that the atonement is a pattern of Christian love, self-giving, <coughs> suffering. They don't want to water down the great difference there is between your suffering and Christ's suffering, but they do want to say that Christ's suffering is a paradigm. I occasionally buy something called the 14 Times, I don't know if you get it over here, UFO Watchers magazine, it's just worth, it's read by the true believers and the true skeptics, and I'm a true skeptic, so I, I read it and, and laugh. But they had a, a, an edition on Stigmata some time back, and it really is rather, rather strange. Just give you some examples then of some great medieval mystics before we move on, probably in the second half, to look at uh, the two great women mystics I want to flag up for you. Uh, the first example I want to pull out is St. Bonaventure. <clears throat> Born around 1217, member of the Franciscan order. St. Francis, of course, is, is the great stigmatic of the Middle Ages. He's the one who loves, you know, talks to the animals, loves animals, but he's also the great stigmatic. He bears in his body the wounds of Christ. So he thought. Bonaventure becomes a Franciscan in 1243. He has an interesting career because he, he, he patterns exactly the way in which scholastic school theology, careful argumentation, and mystical theology are, are sort of united in the one man. His early works tend to be more scholastic, more school-based. His later works tend to be somewhat mystical. But the same man is doing both things with no apparent conflict or tension. He's the man who falls out with Thomas Aquinas when Aquinas says that you can't prove that the world was created creation of the world is an item of faith. Bonaventure disagrees and says, no, no. So one could make a case for saying, if you like, he is a more rational theologian. And yet he also writes uh, one of the most important uh, mystical treatises of the Middle Ages, Journey of the Mind into God. Title immediately giving the game away. This is the kind of the return to God idea begins with prayer and then the pilgrimage of the believer on earth is seen as an ascent through six uh, stages through the senses, the crude senses through the imagination, through the reason through understanding 
through intelligence, reflective understanding. Finally, to direct grasp of God himself, <coughs> the summit of intellectual achievement. Moves from the world through divine Augustinian illumination to the restoration of the Trinitarian image in ourselves. It's framed in terms of Augustinian language that culminates in this full restoration of the image of God. The Christian mind, ultimately the goal of the Christian mind, is to lose itself in contemplation of the divine. Thomas Aquinas, I want to include him, hard-headed thinker, obviously. We looked at his treatise on predestination last time. He's a hard-headed thinker, interested in the cut and thrust of university scholastic disputation. And yet there are elements in Aquinas that are profoundly mystical. Read his prayers. I would suggest you that you read his prayers. And there you have deep devotion, profound contemplation, married to a clear idea of the unknowability of God, the finiteness of humanity. Supremely, of course, in Aquinas, you have the events at the end of his career. He's officiating at Mass just a couple of months before he dies. Something happens. He has some kind of direct experience of God at Mass on one side and refuses to write anymore because, as I've told you before, he says, everything I've written until now seems like straw, thinks it's rubbish. But he means the delights, if you like, that he's directly experienced everything that he's written about. So Aquinas then, I think, one of the great medieval mystics. It is significant, nicely symbolic, I think, that the Summa Theologiae remains unfinished. Summa Theology that ultimately says at the end, whatever your system is, it cannot fully, it's open-ended, if you like, it's looking out to eternity. So Thomas Aquinas, I would suggest, one of the great medieval mystics. Third one, before we start, Meister Eckhart, a German, born around 1260. Pupil of Albertus Magnus. Who else is a pupil of Albertus Magnus Aquinas? Yeah, Meister Eckhart is placed a great emphasis, Meister Eckhart, upon the transformative nature of God's grace. God's grace transformed the believer. His knowledge and experience of God was transformed by God's grace. He was an extremely erudite, extremely rigorous. <laughs> but his thought terminated the formation of the believer. He also had something of a ministry on the side, preaching to communities of female religious radicals. A nebulous connection. The three guys, I would suggest you go away. You will find volumes by them in the Classics of Western Spirituality. I think it's a series, isn't it? Always Classics of Spirituality. You will find volumes with works of these guys translated. I would suggest, if you're interested, go away and read them see how much uh, rigorous scholastic theology is not opposed to religious experience, to mystical dimensions. And bear that in mind when these guys are enjoying popularity for their mystical writings, ask yourself, is it right, is it proper to divorce? We're not schizophrenics. They didn't see their doctrinal work and their mystical work standing somehow at odds with each other. They saw them as of the same uh, integrated I want to come on now to another 10 minutes and I, I won't play the music till the second half but um, the two women I want to look at latterly are both women. A couple of preliminary comments. Why don't I really touch upon women in general 
in my classes. Uh, partly it's the nature of what I am. I'm an intellectual historian. Uh, and intellectual historians are interested in ideas set in context. We are therefore dependent upon the kinds of texts that are written. So one of the reasons why there is a strongly male flavour to the history of Western theology is we just don't know what women thought. In the same way, we don't know what poor people thought. What we know, generally speaking, is what wealthy white men thought women thought. Wealthy white men thought poor people thought. So my selection of authors is not driven, I would hope, primarily by the fact that I'm a man, dead white man. However, this point... <laughs> So I didn't know it was a joke, but uh, they are all dead white men. It's just the way it is. <laughs> when you come to when you come to the Middle Ages, interesting, I think, partly because it seems to me that they are broadly speaking orthodox. Even when you come to the Reformation, many of the women writers you deal with are somewhat less than orthodox, for explicable social and cultural reasons, I think. When you come to this point in the Middle Ages, we do have a few women that we can look at. Uh, who are, broadly speaking, orthodox in terms of their Christianity. A few things to note in passing. One, women are barred from universities. My own college at Cambridge only allowed women in in 1978. So the medieval tradition took a long time to die in certain medieval institutions. But they were barred from universities, so they didn't have access to the kind of teaching and learning that, say, an Aquinas or a Bonaventure or an Albert the Great had. It means, of course, that they will occupy a somewhat strange place in relation to the past tradition. They will not have been exposed to it in the same way. They will not have the same grasp of the past tradition as their male counterparts within the university would have had. They will also be somewhat on the social margins in terms of intellectual culture. All of these things, I think, help us to explain why they wrote the way they did, and I'll come to that in a couple of, couple of minutes. They're also disconnected from culture. And here I'm thinking particularly of Latin culture. Latin is the language of the educated elite. Not all women will be, have, will be able to write, speak, have access to Latin. Julian of Norwich writes in the vernacular. Hildegard writes in Latin. But not all women have access to Latin. That too will affect and shape the way the tradition, that they relate to the tradition. <coughs> I've written down on my, my handout here, is there such a thing as a feminine way of writing and reading? Question mark. I wrote it down in the form of a question because I didn't know the answer when I wrote it down. And I'm still not entirely sure of the answer now. Um, I'm inclined to say, one would have to say, relatively yes. In the Middle Ages, occupied a distinctive place within culture and within society, and would therefore write in a manner that reflected their own horizons of expectation and experience, which were <laughs> carefully marked out by the culture in which they existed. Whether a woman writes from a womanly perspective by virtue of her genetic make in terms of their location in culture quite clearly, a woman such as Hildegard, a woman such as Julian of Norwich is going to write in a distinctive way that reflects their location and is determined to a large extent by their genetic. We shouldn't 
I'm not convinced by people who go, you know, way overboard and say, oh, isn't it wonderful, women write theology because they bring out the feminine aspects of God. I'm not convinced by that kind of argument as an absolute argument. Though I do find that argument persuasive in terms of their location within the wider cultural setting. And I think it does have an impact, feminine perspective, shall we say, it does have a definite impact upon the way that it makes them prophetic. There is no way in the Middle Ages for a woman like Hildegard or a woman like Julia to make much headway in the wider culture using the norms available to men. Aquinas gets to where he is because he's very clever. And he operates within the norms that are established by the culture in which he operates and, if you like, climbs up the greasy pole by being very clever and talented. That is not the case for women. They don't have the option of rising in the ranks of university scholars, just not opening for them. It seems to me that there are powerful social and cultural forces restricting women that mean that if they're going to write and if they're going to make an impact, they have to be charismatic, prophetic figures. The church has always had this situation where it's had its ordinary hierarchy, and society is the same, it has its ordinary hierarchy but has also had figures within it who subvert the hierarchy or get on without the hierarchy by being charismatic. Those of you who were in my early church class last term, remember I said on a number of occasions, the worst thing that ever happens to the church in some ways, one would say, is martyrs who survive. Because a martyr who survives has an authority by virtue of the fact that they are a martyr and they've experienced very difficult, the church has great difficulties, have authority, not because the church has invested it in them officially, simply because of what they looks arise because some guy or girl who's withstood under persecution comes in conflict between I think what we have in Hildegard and Julian two examples of the charismatic figure how do these women make an impact upon the world in which they live they make an impact by being by having unique that allow them to be somebody in a way that the orthodox channels of promotion they become authoritative. Why is it that people all over Europe seek out Hildegard's advice on politics and medicine, etc.? Because she's a great political thinker or a great medical scientist? No, it's because she's had. Why is it that Joan of Arc is taken seriously by the French authorities? One, God speaks to her directly, and secondly, she wins great victories against the English. Only temporarily, I hasten to add. <laughs> <laughs> I did sort of from that at the end. But um, she's a charismatic figure. What you have in Julian and Hildegard, we'd never have heard of them. They're obviously brilliant women, but we'd never have heard of them unless they've remained as unknown, as far as we're concerned, illiterate. So I think when we talk about the woman's perspective, if you like, in the magnetic genre of writing, central. Forget the, you know, the feminine aspects of God, maybe that's, that may well be important, but I think the crucial impact of their woman on their writing is the fact that other than to be prophetic figures. I don't think that when I read Julia Norwich, I have no reason to doubt that she had these visions. I have to doubt that they were, as far as she was concerned, absolutely. I don't think she consciously set out to subvert the system. The system created a framework into being prophetic. So that's my broad introduction. Um, we'll... I'll give you a little bit about Hildegard and then we'll come and we'll look at the texts in the second half. I'll just give you some facts on Hildegard takes up to 25 past. Does anyone, does, I mean, hey, I'm a man, I'm trying to give a perspective on how women think in the Middle Ages. 
I don't believe that's impossible, but does anyone have any comments on what I've just said as completely off the wall or? Um, right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's a very interesting point. Um, and of course, Hildegard and Julian do much to reinforce that tradition as well. That's a very interesting point. Did everybody hear that? that? If you have a culture where Mary is exalted, it opens the culture, if you like, to hearing the voice of women in a way that, that had not been done or would not be possible, perhaps, in another culture. It's interesting. And that is very interesting because it, Protestant attitudes to Mary interest me because the reformers are very pro-Mary. And we've become increasingly anti, I say anti-Mary, anti the way Mary's used because Catholics have been perceived to become more gung-ho about it. So we've become less and less gung-ho about it to define ourselves over against them. Um, it's an interesting, interesting point, raises a whole lot of interesting questions. Virginia, that could well be a function of a general cultural shift anyway, I suspect, in that you know, avenues are increasingly open to women to succeed using but orthodox you passages. You might say that. I couldn't possibly come. <laughs> I'd get into trouble if I... If I I'm glad it was, a, it, was, it was a lady who said that. I hope you heard that. It wasn't me. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's possible. But as I say, where does... The, the real problem is where does, if you like... Where does social construction of gender end and biological construction of gender begin? Um, that's, that's the real sort of question underlying, I think, what you're saying there. And I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that. It seems to me quite clearly the Bible teaches the difference between men and women, that gender is not simply a social construct. It's also a, rooted in a biological construction as well. What the relationship between the two is, I'm not entirely... You know, I know many women who are emotionally much more stable <laughs> than many of the men I know. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced by the, the female psyche lends itself to charismatic things in a way that the male's not persuaded by that. Hildegard of Bingen, give you a few facts about her life. She was born in a place called Bernersheim. Bernersheim in 1098. She was given, she was the youngest, I think, of 10 children and was given to a monastery as a kind of tithe. <laughs> that wasn't a joke, that's serious, that's a serious point. Samuel was devoted to the Lord's service, so was Hildegard. Um, she spent 42 years in the monastery, ending up as the assistant to uh, an anchorite, a sort of uh, recluse called Jutta. Jutta died in 1136. Hildegard became her. And in 1141, she spent this... Fairly unremarkable years in the monastery, culminating in being Jutta's assistant and then taking over from Jutta. She started to write down her visions. She was in words. 1150, she founded her own foundation, Pittsburgh. Um, and intrigues that surrounded the... And she died in 1179. By the time she died, she had established herself as one of the foremost um, preachers of her day. She was consulted on political matters, on medical matters. She wrote down her visions, um, most famously in a book called Scivias, coming from the Latin Scivias, Know the Ways. Um, she also wrote many, many songs <coughs> and much beautiful music to accompany the songs and prayers. I don't know anything about music, but I am told that Hildegard's music within the context of the Middle Ages is pretty well unique. 
It doesn't partake of the standard orthodoxies of medieval religious mu music. Precisely what one would expect, I suppose, from a woman who's writing music without ever, ha ever having had any formal musical education. And I've given you a, a few examples here. If you just flick through the Hildegard text and then I'll um, give you, we'll play some music by her. Her career starts or is kick-started by writing to Bernard of Clairvaux. You'll notice the letter here. Um, I always love the beginning of these sort of medieval come Renaissance, come Reformation letters where you, you just butter up the person you're writing to. Venerable Father Bernard, you're held wonderfully in high honor uh, by the power of God. You're a terror to the unlawful foolishness of the word. You burn in the love of God's Son. You're eager to win men for the banner of the Holy Cross, to fight wars in the Christian army against the fury of the pagans. Father, I ask you by the living God to attend to my questions. He goes on to uh, talk about her visions. Um, you will notice the, uh, the language of greenness that occurs here and elsewhere. Uh, ties her in, of course, with modern ecological concerns. More, I think, in the minds of modern ecologists, probably, than in the mind of Hildegard of Bingen. Um, She's really asking here for what she should do with her visionary gift. I have great trouble, she says on page four, with this visionary gift about how much I should say of what I've seen and heard. And sometimes, because I keep quiet, I'm laid low by the vision and confined to my sickbed, unable to raise myself up. So I am sad, I lament before you. I am unstable with the movement of the wooden beam of the right wine press in my nature, the beam which grew at the prompting of the devil from the root of Adam. But now I raise myself up, I run, I speak to you. Uh, she's asking him for advice on what to do about her visions. Um, just flick over the page. I don't want to spend too much time on these things. I want you to go away and read them for yourself. As I said Hildegard and Julian are two of the books I've suggested that you read for the examination question. Um, <clears throat> you will notice much of the discussion uh, when she talks about redemption focuses on the Trinity. She is, I think, an orthodox theologian. Um, but you'll also see an awful lot of imagery, uh, dew on grass, fire, bright lights, dark spheres, um, all kinds of imagery that I think ties in with what I was trying to say earlier on, that there's a sense that the mystics are trying to express something that ordinary language um, cannot grasp. And indeed, Hildegard invents her own secret language. One or two things. She has Latin sentences with invented words put in them. Again, I think, making some profound point about the opacity of language and the ability to grasp uh, these things. Over on page 12, just pull out a couple of highlights for you. Bottom of the, the first section there that I've underlined. Um, Human creature, you are a wholeness in every created thing and yet you forget your creator. All things subject you to obey their creator as they were made to. But only you desire to transgress his commandments. Um, great theology, I think, this. Great theology. Uh, top of page 13. Before his assumption of the flesh, the word was indivisible in the Father and remained inseparable in him after his assumption of human nature. For as human being cannot exist without the breath of air in his inner organs, in the same way the unique word cannot be separated in any way from the Father. I think that sounds pretty orthodox to me. Why is he called the word through the speaking of the localized word which is impermanent in the dust of humanity? Why isn't prudent people understand the commands of a ruler and the reason of his commands? 
Um, the, lang- the, the analogy of the spoken word, commonplace among Christian theologians. Again, Hildegard, uh, for all of her marginal position as a woman, clearly has a good grasp of basic uh, sound theology. Then if you go over the page, I photocopied here a couple of um, <clears throat> tracks. We'll certainly listen to the first one, and maybe we'll, we'll just have a, a little burst of the second. Um, the New Age stuff is perhaps slightly less uh, significant for us. But here, um, the prayer, let's read it together. Flame of the par- paraclete spirit, life of the life of every creature. You are holy for giving life to all forms. You are holy for anointing the dangerously broken. You are holy for cleaning fetid wounds. Breath of holiness, fire of love, sweet taste in the breast, an infusion of hearts, in the good odour of virtues, purest spring in whom it is seen, that God brings together strangers and seeks out those who are lost. Armour of life and hope of binding together all members. Girdle of honesty, save the blessed. Guard those who have been imprisoned by an enemy and release those who are bound, whom holy power desires to save. Strongest way which has penetrated all things, the highest places, the plains and every abyss. You unite and gather everyone. Around you clouds stream, the airs fly, stones are moist, waters draw out streams, and the earth irrigates greenness. Notice the language of greenness there, the ecological stuff. Um, Again, if you take that out of its Christian context, bung it down in the 20th century with no idea of the particular context in which Hildegard is working, you can read your own ecological interests very easily into the sort of language she uses. It's amazing how uh, the language of uh, greenness, um, if you look over onto the Latin, viriditatem, uh, the, the language of greenness permeates what Hildegard says. You also constantly produce the learned, men made happy by the inspiration of knowledge. Uh, wherefore, praise be to you who are the sound of praise and joy of life, hope and richest honour, giving the rewards of light. Well, let's listen to that track. Um, if I can. This belongs to my five-year-old, so six-year-old, so it's quite probable I will be incapable of working operates. Um, but I'll give spare. <clears throat> it's about five minutes long, so feel free to fall asleep or close your eyes and... Get wrapped up in a mystical experience. <laughs> <laughs> End of the third line. first
so. Quite different, I think you'll, those, those of you who ever listened to a Gregorian chant or anything, it's quite a different kind of music and strangely beautiful. And I think that if you just read the words, you get no um, conception of the, the emotional power, I guess, that the, the prayer or the hymn would have packed um, in its original monastic setting. So, the other thing I was going to, uh, I'll just play a brief second of it, because it's a bit funky, or however you want to pronounce it, but um, uh, the second one I've chosen, the O growing branch, standing in your excellence with the coming of the door, now rejoice and delight and deign to free us the weak from wicked habits, extend your hand and raise us up. Language of branch, often used. Now Hildegard uses that really to refer to Christ or Christ's work, because I mean, it has a specifically Christian um, context for Hildegard. But as again, as I say, divorced from that original context, you can give it a new age ecological sort of spin in some way. I'll just give you a very quick burst of this, so I want to move on. Um, but uh, a very quick one, just to show how this, this group's called Garmana. Right, they get there, a Scandinavian new age group, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm blaming you for this. Uh, I'm actually going to go out and buy my own copy. I sort of got so. Uh, this is quite a different pace. It's quite different. <laughs> the careful attention to the original medieval context. Uh, I do, I commend both of these albums actually. I'll just write them up on the, for you. Um, the one is uh, in the Naxos series. Naxos, a great series of classical CDs. If you don't know much about music like me, and it doesn't matter who's conducting particularly, you just like the tune, which is basically where I'm at. Um, Naxos, Heavenly Revelations. That's the medieval so there are various, if you've bought the book, the book actually comes with a discography. There's a whole heap of different uh, Hildegard discs. But Naxos are very cheap, they're kind of six or seven dollars, I think, probably. So Heavenly Revelations, and the other one is by Garmana. My wife and I very much like Scottish Gaelic music, and there's a certain Scottish Gaelic feel to, to this at times. And that's simply entitled Hildegard of Bingham. This is the funky one, Garmana. Which I listened to in the car a few times. It's, I quite like it. <coughs> Thanks. That was good. So, Hildegard, then, I want to, those of you who are interested in reading her for the exam, I want to suggest to you that you do try to get hold of some of her music as well, because when you listen to that music, certainly the first one, you realise there is a certain atmosphere that the music creates for the thought that you simply don't get from the, the printed page. Um, it's the same in Reformation times. Uh, some of the liturgies in the Reformation can leave you a bit cold, but when you have them 
put to their original musical setting, it brings out something that isn't there when you just read them from the page. So I would suggest the fact that Hildegard wrote music um, means that if you're at all interested in her, get hold of the music and listen to it. And the second CD is, apart from anything else, it's a great example of how Hildegard has been appropriated by a sort of more new agey um, consciousness. So, Virginia, I'm very serious when I was nodding there. I'm only sort of, I'm tongue in cheek when I'm saying these things. So. Uh, yeah, they were, they were written to sing. She wrote them to sing. So her, I hate the word spirituality because it, it seems to me to be such a vague word, but her spirituality was intimately linked to the kind of music that she wrote as well. She founded at least one other monastery and she enjoyed a European-wide reputation, certainly on mainland Europe anyway, um, as a woman of real theological, ecclesiastical, political stature. How widespread the singing of her stuff was in her own lifetime, I don't know. The there are many, many books written on her, some of which are complete nonsense. Feminists have taken her up with a vengeance um, and, and give a very, very distinctive feminist slant on her, but there are some other books that I think are less interested in, in peddling a particular ideology and more interested in her life and work. And you'll find them listed in the, in the, the Penguin book. She is, I think, one of the most interesting figures to emerge in the Middle Ages. And it, you know, is worthy of more than some of her followers today have made of her, I think. She's quite clearly a Christian theologian, quite clearly a very talented musician. also right? I think so. Um, is there an extract of a play in here, in fact? Um, she writes a sort of dramatic, there's certainly a dramatic dialogue in here, the play of the virtues from Scivias. It's a kind of dramatic dialogue. Whether it was ever performed as a play, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, she was very talented. And one of, because of her rather strange, restricted background, she's quite clearly a genius, I think, to have done what she did without you being able to say, well, because she had the background she did, this is how it all culminated. No, that, that, that doesn't, doesn't hold for Hildegard. She just seems to come from nowhere in a strange way. It's almost a thousand, almost 900, more than 900 years. A melody, a tune. I don't know what manuscripts the musicians depend on. She certainly wrote music, and as far as I know, everybody assumes that music we have is the music that she wrote. Um, do we have any 11th century manuscripts of Hildegard being in? I don't know. Um, but there's always a, we're all dependent to a certain extent upon trusting later textual traditions in, in all aspects of historical work. So I think unless there was distinct evidence to the contrary, one would assume that this was her work, I think. Right, just flick on really briefly then, look at Julian of Norwich. Um, Julian is comparatively less interesting than Hildegard, I think. Um, if you look on, the, uh, there are, as I said, there are also many more books of Hildegard translations around as well. I picked this one because it was easily accessible and relatively cheap. But there are other books of translations of her works around. Um, Julian of Norwich, around about 1342 to somewhere after 1416. We have references to her being alive in 1416 and not thereafter. So she is interesting because she is the first English writer who is positively identifiable as a woman. There are a number of anonymous writings that come before Julian, which may or may not have been written by women. 
Julian is the first that is positively identifiable as a woman. She lives a fairly closeted and restricted life compared to Hildegarda Bingen. She starts having visions while she's ill. She later becomes the anchoress at St. Julian's Church in Norwich and takes the name of the... Something gone wrong with the bells today. <laughs> uh, St. Julian's Church. An anchoress, or anchorite, we're not quite sure that the various um, etymologies for the word, but essentially an anchorite or an anchoress is somebody who lives a solitary life, dependent upon a community, but removed from the community. You've got to have somebody to feed and clothe you. But she lived in a cell, all by herself, in this church. And the selections I've given you from Julian are just to give you a little taste of the kind of thing that she's writing. Again, her visions start when she is ill. The text exists in two forms, the um, Revelations of Divine Love, the so-called short text and the longer text. The longer text can, is a more elaborate version of the shorter text and contains certain visions that she apparently had earlier, but had not yet, excuse me, had not yet come to a proper understanding of in order to commit herself to writing about. What I've given you in your handouts here is the intro, really, from the short text, and then a couple of extracts from the longer text. Um, let's just whiz very quickly through this. I asked for three graces, vivid perception of Christ, passion. Here we have the emphasis upon the suffering of Christ. Second was bodily sickness, and the third was for God to give me three wounds. I thought of the first as I was meditating. It seemed to me that I could feel the passion of Christ strongly. But yet I long, by God's grace, to feel it more intensely. I thought how I wished I had been there at the crucifixion with Mary Magdalene and the others who were Christ's dear friends. Here you have the you know, experience clearly united to doctrine. She has an understanding of Christ's suffering. And she, because she understands it, she wants to feel it more intensely. It's not a question of, uh, you know, never mind the doctrine, just give me the experience. It's a give me the experience because I have the doctrine. Deeper knowledge. We're just, we're just going to whiz through this at sort of speed. Um, second gift, uh, bodily sickness. I wanted this bodily sickness to be to the death, so that I might in that sickness receive all the rights of the Holy Church, that I might myself believe I was dying, and that everyone who saw me might believe the same, for I wanted no hopes of fleshly or earthly life. She wants sickness in order to precipitate her union with God, if you like, uh, through the church, sacraments of the Church. Um, passion and the sickness the third gift I heard a man of Holy Church tell the story of Saint Cecilia for his description understood that she received three sword wounds in the neck from which she slowly and painfully died moved by this I conceived a great longing praying our Lord God that he would grant me three wounds in my lifetime that is to say the wound of contrition the wound of compassion and the wound of longing for God two of the longings just mentioned passed from my mind and the third stayed me and then she goes on and talks about God giving her a bodily sickness and then halfway down two-thirds of the way down page five she has her first major vision a priest comes to visit her comes with a, a boy assistant they bring a cross presumably a crucifix the parson set the cross before my face and said daughter i brought you the image of your savior look upon it and be comforted in reverence to him that died for you and me it seemed to me that i was well as i was for my eyes were looking if i could so as to be i might be able to bear looking straight ahead for longer than i could manage and there's dim all around me as dark as if it had been night, except that in the image of the cross, 
An ordinary household light remained. I could not understand how. Everything except the cross was ugly to me, as if crowded with fiends. After this, I felt the upper part of my body was beginning to die. My hands fell down on either side, and my head settled down sideways for weakness. <coughs> the greatest pain I felt was shortness of breath and failing of life. Then I truly believed I was at the point of death. And at this moment, all my suffering suddenly left me. And I was as completely well, especially in the upper part of my body, as I ever was before. I did not expect to live. So staring at the cross precipitates this strange, mystical uh, experience. And then if you go down to the bottom of page six, last paragraph, and I suddenly saw the red blood trickling down from under the crown of thorns, all hot, freshly, plentifully and vividly, just as I imagined it was at the moment when the crown of thorns was thrust onto his blessed head. He was both God and man, the same who suffered for me. I believed truly and strongly that it was he himself who showed me this without any intermediary. And then I said, Benedicite Dominus. Veneration, I said it in a very loud voice. So there you have a description of her first vision. And she goes on, and the texts I've given you um, give you more details of the visions she has. Um, I've also photocopied for you uh, page 4142 uh, is a list. This is from the longer text. This is a list of all the visions that she goes on to have. Um, just run through them very quickly. The first vision of the crowning with thorns understood and specified the trinity with the incarnation and unity between God and the soul of man. Notice how doctrinal the visions are. This isn't a kind of hairy-fairy, um, blind experience. It's clearly linked to her understanding of Christ and the sacramental ministry of the church. Secondary is the discoloring of the face, a sign of passion. Third is that our Lord God, almighty wisdom, all love, just as truly as he made everything that is so truly he does and brings about all that is done. Fourth is the scourging of his tender body. Fifth is the fiend. Sixth is the noble gratitude of the Lord God. Seventh is the frequent experience of joy and sorrow. Eighth is Christ's last suffering. Ninth is the pleasure taken by the Holy Trinity in the hard agony of Christ. Um, uh, tenth is our Lord Jesus Christ lovingly showing his blessed heart. And over on the top of page 42. Eleventh is a high spiritual showing of his dear mother. The mystics are closely linked to the increased... Uh, emphasis upon the culture of uh, the cult of Mary in the late Middle Ages. Twelfth is that our Lord is being in its most noble form. That's a very philosophical way of describing uh, Christ, being in its most noble form. Thirteenth, that the Lord wishes us to consider carefully, admire the splendor of all that he's done. Fourteenth, that the Lord is the foundation of our prayers. Fifth, that we shall be immediately taken from all our suffering and all our sorrows. Sixteenth is that the Holy Trinity, our Maker, lives eternally in our souls in Christ Jesus. This is an explicitly Christian form of, myth, of mysticism. You cannot divorce the experience and the visions that this woman is having from the specifically Christian context in which she's operating. And if you're looking for a more mystical form of piety, it's nothing. it has no relation whatsoever to the kind of vacuous, anything goes mysticism of the new age generation it is quite clearly rooted in an understanding of god as trinity in an understanding of christ's incarnation in an understanding of the church as the sacramental uh, representation of christ's body on earth um, so <coughs> just uh, flick over a couple of oh yeah just one and a photocopy view as well chapter 57 because it's here that uh, Julian brings out the feminine aspects of God, if you like. 
<coughs> trying to see. Let's read through it. I'll talk about we being made complete in Christ. Um, the whole of the Trinity is included in Christ, in whom the higher part of our nature is grounded and rooted. Uh, made mankind for love. Talks about the goodness of faith. Uh, trying to see. Ah, here we are, last paragraph of actually underlined. Thus our Lady is our Mother, in whom we are all enclosed, and are born from her in Christ. For she who is Mother of our Saviour is Mother of all who will be saved in our Saviour. And our Saviour is our true Mother, in whom we are eternally born, and by whom we shall always be enclosed. This was shown abundantly, fully and sweetly, and is spoken of in the first showing, where he says that we are all enclosed in us. One of the things that writers make most of in Julian of Norwich is the emphasis upon... Um, the motherhood of God. I don't, reading Julian, it's a note that struck occasionally. It doesn't seem to me to be a dominant theme at all. And it doesn't seem to do, she doesn't seem to do much more than the Bible itself does when it occasionally uses mother-style imagery about the relationship of God to believers. I mean, the famous one is Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I've wanted to gather you up as a hen gathers her chicks. I don't think we can make much of a theology of the femininity of God based on a passage like that. Um, so Julian's language is striking here, but in the overall context, I think she is clearly operating within the broad parameters laid down by orthodoxy. And I suspect we probably shouldn't make too much of it. Roth. Uh, I, I haven't read this recently. I recall uh, some of how she views the fall yeah. and also <clears throat> Sort of, yeah. uh, how will God solve this problem? I'm looking at the world and God loves everybody. And oh, all sure, I see sure. Is love. sure. How can there be hell? Yeah. yeah, she's quite clearly tends in a very universalist direction, I think. Um, I suppose when I've been trying to say that she's operating with an orthodox Christian framework, I'm trying to make the point that her mysticism is not mysticism divorced from a doctrinal context. I'm not trying to say that she's an absolute model of orthodoxy on all points. Um, so yeah, I would certainly want to inject that caveat that she clearly tends in a universalist direction. Like many, in particular, strands of medieval theology, she tends in a strongly Pelagian direction as well. She's not unique in that. There are many men. You know, that's not a feminine thing. That's partly due to, if you like, ignorance of the tradition. And it's not just Julian of Norwich and women who are marginalised in the tradition who are ignorant of the tradition. Many of the men within the tradition, with less reason to be ignorant, are ignorant. Oh, yeah. All she sees is love. Yeah. And it, it can be very compelling. Oh, yeah. 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 To see what, how she. And the very fact, as I say, <laughs> these books are still in print. People are still buying them, still reading them. And probably more Christians are buying and reading these than are buying other theologians that were contemporaries of these women but were more significant in many ways in the history of the church in the past. So, yeah, it's very winsome. Um, <coughs> right. Well, Hildegard would have learned it in the monastery. No, she was. In, I think there was. There, there is education in, in women's monasteries. They don't. They don't have access to universities. This is a point in time where the universities are the intellectual trendsetters, if you like. So, in saying that women don't have access to the universities, I'm saying no more and no less than they didn't have access to the universities. Not that they didn't have access to any form of education. Clearly these are, I think there's some debate about Julian of Norwich, but clearly Hildegard of Bingen is, is a literate person. There's always a debate, you know, exactly what do you mean by a literate person? It's quite probable that, that Julian of Norwich was able to write in the vernacular. 
that she was literate in that sense of the word. But they lacked a certain literacy in, certain, in terms of the wider theological culture, which was very sophisticated by this point. So I'm not, you know, in my comments about women's education, I'm not saying women weren't educated. Clearly they are. Clearly some women can read and write. Um, what I'm saying is they don't have access to the education that Thomas Aquinas had access to, or Albert the Great, or somebody like this. And, of course, one could say, well, women didn't have access to these things. One can also say that 99% of men didn't have access to them either. Um, it is a gender thing, but it's not just a gender thing. It's also a money and status thing. Women from wealthy homes would be educated in a way that men from poor homes would not be. So you know, we mustn't forget the wealth and status aspect to all this. I don't know the answer to that. It would appear so, but I, don't, I can't give a definitive answer. I don't know. I never reflected on it. I suspect it would depend upon the monastery. Um, but obviously it could be done. Whether it was universally practiced, I don't know. Most seem to... I mean, going into the monastery was a prestigious thing. I mean, one of the problems with um, Aquinas is that his parents have got him lined up, I think, for the Cistercians, and he goes into the on the block. So sending your child there in the early teenage or later teenagers was something to do. But whether the practice of handing the child over very early in life was... I suppose monasteries have always operated, to a certain extent, a, a little bit like a, a national social security. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not just by... Medi not, um, I mean, A.W. Tozer, to think of a modern Christian writer, very influenced by medieval uh, mystics. I think the imitation of Christ is particularly appealing to pietistic movements where the tendency is to root things in practice and experience rather than in doctrinal matters. So, yeah, that's very true. Um, and you have people like Wesley, very influenced, I think, by Thomas Akempis, characters like that. Uh, I mean, that would be another mystical author. I suggested Julian and Hildegard, I said, partly because they were women, because we just don't read many women on the course. There aren't many women writing, and that makes them interesting. But I could have chosen Thomas Akempis. Imitation of Christ, very, very influential sort of mystical writer of the Middle Ages. But you're right. I think the crucial things to keep in mind are those that I've said. Don't be aware that when people start uh, opposing mystical experience to doctrinal positions, they're doing something that the medievals themselves did not do. And that that involves, if you like, a use of the text which the medievals themselves would probably not have sanctioned. That would seem to be the crucial thing. The second thing would be, bear in mind that very often they use imagery. Hildegard of Bingen uses the imagery drawn from nature, drawn from flowers, branches, streams, etc., etc. Just because somebody uses imagery, though, doesn't necessarily mean that they themselves are not importing a specific content to that imagery. And it seems that when Hildegard explains what she means, when Julian explains what she means, she's trying to uh, fill out that imagery with Christian content. Christian, if you like, in the, you know, bearing in mind Roth's comment, Christian sometimes in the broadest possible sense of the word. But it's not simply free-floating imagery that, hey, it's the image that's the thing and you can make it mean what you want and isn't it wonderful that we live at a time where everybody, you know, does what is right in their own eyes. That's not their original intention. But of course, you know, a radical postmodernist to say, so what? You know, you, we, we use the texts. We give meanings to the texts. The texts don't, don't transform us.
Except, of course, I said when it's, you know, your postmodernist looking at his contract of employment and his employers trying to get texts often seem to have a strange way of gaining meaning rather quickly then. <laughs> <laughs>